0: Well, listen, gang, um, this is a special Sunday for us at Impact because I have been praying and seeking the Lord for 41 days um, for a vision that is different, that is consistent with his word, that is different, that separates us, that would help us, empower us as a church to actually make an impact, to live up to our name as a church and... Man, the Lord has really spoken to me during that time. How many of you have ever done a fast before? Let me see your hands if you've ever done a fast. Several of you, Daniel fast, uh, all water fast. There's a lot of different kinds of fast, but today is, I've been, I started out with an all water fast. Uh, I didn't stay with that all 41 days, otherwise I'd be giving the pastor is dead speech today. Um, but I shifted over to the Daniel fast and uh, just really Begged for a couple things from God, not just that he would tell me what he wanted me and this church to do and be about, but it would be so clear, and that it would be such a God thing that we can't do it by ourselves, that he has to get involved or it would fail. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple of the things that stand in our way and how we can release God's power in our life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, and let's give this time to him Father, this whole thing comes to a culmination today, Lord, and the series begins today. And I'm going to unpack what you told me, Father. I'm going to deliver it to them. I'm going to be your mouthpiece, Father. And some are going to love it, Lord. Some are going to say, this is so simple, and, and these are our marching orders, and it's from the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's go. And others are going to say, no, I, I, it's not for me. And, and God, I just pray that, that whatever we have, Father... Uh, Well, God, I pray nobody would say there's not for them, Father, because it's from your word. It's for every believer, Lord. But I pray that we'd be fired up about it, that we'd move forward with passion, Lord, and not just do church. There's plenty of churches doing church. God, we need to be the church. Live it out. Be alive and active and powerful and a witness and little Christians for you. Little Jesus' little, little Christ, little representatives. So speak to our hearts, Father, the ears of our hearts, the eyes of our hearts. Let this message penetrate deep down to our soul and change us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, listen, gang, as I look back over history, there is a disturbing thread that seems naively and dangerously woven into every single culture that you can think of since there's been culture, since the dawn of time. I'm talking Adam and Eve. It's there. They were the first to show it. I don't think anybody picked up on it, really, but it was there. It's a trade-off of sorts, but it's not a very good one. It's not a very fair one. In fact, it's a very, very poor trade for all parties involved. You take this trade that millions of people will take and have taken and will continue to take, probably taking today, maybe even sitting here, there are people that are, involved in this trade, and you will experience anguish and regret. All parties lose in this trade. Nevertheless, it's made every day, all around the world, in every culture, millions of times. I call it, got a name for it in case you want to write it down. I call it Surprise Me. Go ahead and write it down. Surprise Me. That's the trade. Who here likes surprises? You like surprises? Man, that's a small group. This is a pretty basic group. Don't surprise me. Don't go out of the ordinary. Man, if we're going to have that, we shouldn't have had Seth lead, man, because he's just off the hook. He'll, he could go any direction at any time. Um, I, I'm really not much of a surprise guy, but some people really love surprise parties. Some people absolutely hate them. If you're like me, I will beg my wife. If, she's even, if I even think she's thinking of that, I will do everything. I'll threaten her. I'll say, we'll, we'll skip your birthday for the next five years. Do not have a surprise party. I don't, I don't like those things. Um, <clears throat> but some people love them, love to be the recipient the, of them, love to be on the receiving end of all the focus and the, the fuss, I guess. But most surprises have a mixed bag. I don't know if you ever noticed. There are some surprises that no one in their right mind with enough foreknowledge would ever sign up for. It's a lot worse than the surprise party. At least in the surprise party, you get gifts. That part's cool. Is anybody's love language gifts here? Okay, me and you too. All right, so three of us, love, language, gift. By the way, keep that in mind when Pastor's Appreciation Month comes by. That's my love language. <laughs> well, then that's the only good part of it that I can find. <clears throat> but nobody, if they had enough foreknowledge of what this particular surprise and this trade-off is really about, they wouldn't take it. No way. For instance, if someone brought you to three identical sort of storage room doors, you've seen those big storage places? They're like garage doors and behind them. Or if you ever watched that show Storage Wars, I think it is with the Oscar award-winning acting and all that's on that thing. I don't even know why we have shows like that. But if they had three identical-looking storage units, they're really, really big, and they have these doors here, and they said, listen, this is your day. We're playing a game show, and I've got all the power, and there are three identical doors, and behind one of these doors is a one-week vacation for two to Cancun. That's pretty cool, huh? Anybody like that? Three of you. The rest of you like eight degrees that it was like a couple weeks ago, and you just like the dismal gray days? Another door has $1 million a year for life. Yeah, you guys are getting into this. Imagination. You guys are getting into this. Uh, And the final door, and you don't know which one it is. They're all identical. Leads to a 3,000-square-foot maze, very dimly lit, with no way of escape, and only one other person in it. That person is either, A, Freddy Krueger, B, Jason from Friday the 13th, or C, Michael of the Halloween movie franchise, And should you end up there, you will be stuck there for all of eternity. Ready? Go. You have one minute to decide. Let me hear some feedback. How many of you would go for it? If anybody raises their hand, aside from my son, who I'm going to take behind the woodshed just for raising his hand, you are being very foolish. I mean, you want to give me that? I don't need a minute to decide. I need two seconds. Pass. No, I'm not taking it. How about one billion dollars a day behind the door? No. Pass. Why? Because I don't even want to take a chance of ending up for all eternity in a dimly lit maze with one of those psychos, right? And neither do you. And yet, so nobody would take that, right? Wrong. Wrong. Turns out people make choices like this every single day. Millions upon millions of people, they roll the dice on eternity, leaving the whole thing to chance. That's crazy. In fact, as my daughter was, here's my daughter right there, she would say, that's cray cray. That's the way to say it now. She wouldn't say it like that. In fact, I'm probably gonna be in trouble for saying it like that. Dad, that was so uncool. That was so... But anyway, she'd say, that's cray cray. And I agree with her. You know, friends, any chance of eternity separated from God and all our loved ones who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior in a very real place that the Bible talks about more than it talks about heaven, a very real place of torment called hell is too much of a chance. Isn't it? It's too much of a chance. I'm not rolling the dice on that. Not only should we not roll the dice, we shouldn't own the dice. We should find a way to keep dice away from us. We shouldn't touch them, look at them, anything. I don't even want to take a chance. I don't even want to take a chance with this. Listen, gang. Some of you know, because, well, all of you know, I said it a little while ago, uh, that I've been fasting, seeking the Lord, perhaps pressing into him harder in the last 30 or 40 days than years, than years. I began with a a, a one-day water-only fast, and I'll tell you what happened. I started hearing from the Lord a little bit. And I longed for more, so I extended it to what is talked about, I believe, in Daniel 1, the Daniel 10-day fast, fruits and vegetables, that's it. But at the end of, of 10 days, it felt like I was only getting started, so I kept going fully intending to stop at 21 days, because in chapter 9, Daniel has the 21-day fast, which is really the same thing, only no sweets or anything on that, which I did for the, the entire time anyway. But at the end of 21 days, the Lord started speaking louder and more clearly than he had in years. And so I wasn't ready to let go. I wasn't ready for it to be over. So I asked the Lord, first of all, Lord, can I ask you a simple question? How long? How long do I go with this? I'm a relatively skinny guy. I don't. And I felt like he took me immediately to Luke chapter 4. Because that's when Jesus was baptized, and he came up out of, by John the Baptist, and came up out of the water, and immediately the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days and nights of fasting, at the end of which, during the whole thing he was tempted, but at the end of which he got the three biggest temptations of his life. And I just kept going there, and I was reading that, and I was thinking, so is that the Number? And he said, yes. So today is day 41 of my time of fasting and pressing in to to hear God's voice. And this series, friends, is a result of that. It's a result of that. Look up here. I'm cheating a little bit because I can't see you that good. But I'm going to trust you that you're looking. I, I believe with all my heart, if you will press in to God, that he will greatly bless you. And if you haven't heard from God, if you will go without and seek him and press in through fasting, you will hear from God. Not only will you hear from him, you'll start hearing specifics. You'll start hearing him more clearly than you ever have. I highly recommend it. I hope to get to the point as a church where we'll start off every year with 21-day Daniel fast. Every year. Why not give him the first fruits of our food? Everything first in our life belongs to him anyway. And so I thought, I'm going to give him the first of the year so that he can bless the rest of the year. Thank you. And I fully expect him to do that. I also believe that during a time of fasting, God will bring extra clarity. Your prayers will move from, listen, thank you, Jesus, for this day, or thank you, God, for this day. Please keep us all safe and help me be good. Amen. You ever pray prayers like that? And don't say no, because I hear these prayers out there. When you ask anybody to pray, it's, I can predict the first few words. Thank you, God, for this day. It's, what is that? Pastor, you shouldn't mock those prayers. I'm not, but let me just challenge you. Will we talk to anybody else like this? Men, where are you? Raise your hand. Men, when you dated your wife, is that how you dated her? Did you go out on a date and stay completely silent the whole time and hardly even talk to her, pay for the dinner, and just go, mm, mm? And then towards the end, you said, thank you for this date, ma'am. I promise to drive carefully in order to deliver you to your home safely. Did you do that? I don't think you did because you wouldn't be married to her. She would have just laughed and joked about you for the rest of her life to her real husband. Because that's not a relationship. That's nothing. Unless your goal was to never see that person again, you wouldn't do that. So why do we talk to God like that? Why do we 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 have this opportunity to have a relationship with Almighty God? And it's, thank you, God, for this day. Help me be good, keep me safe, give me traveling mercies. And I'm not saying that's not sin or anything, but it, it's shallow when God wants to take us subterranean, He wants to take us deep in His relationship, and that's just, just skimming the surface. You will begin to pray. If you seek the Lord and and, and spend more time in his word and more time in prayer, you'll begin to pray in faith for specifics that only God can do. In essence, setting up a situation where if God does not show up, it ain't going to happen. God, this is what you're telling me, and I know that I can't do this. I can't even imagine how I can do this. I can't even dream about how I could do this. So you got to show up, God. You have to show up. Can I tell you something? God loves those situations. God loves those. Why do you imagine God would love that? Why do you imagine God would love impossible situations where he kind of feels like he's setting us up, and then if he doesn't show up, it doesn't happen. Why would God love that? I know, Pastor, he's vindictive. No, why would he really love that? That's right. He gets all the glory. He is glorified. By the way, good talking back. Talk back more. You can do that. Otherwise, I think you're not alive. That scares me a little bit. That's right. He gets the glory. The more impossible it is, from our perspective, the more possible it is for the God of the impossible. And he loves that. He gets more glory. When you get right down to it, only two things. I want you to get this. I want you to write this down. I've thought about this. Only two things determine our destiny. You want to know where you're going to end up in this life? It comes down to this. Our choices and our responses to God, period. Am I wrong? Because I can't figure it out. Only two things. If you want to end up somewhere great for God, two things will determine that. The choices you make and the responses you make to God when he calls you to do something. That's it. You want to end up somewhere great? Then don't say no to God. You want to end up somewhere great? Then don't make choices for Satan. That's just those. It's amazing how simple this is. So I made the choice to fast. And I'll be honest with you, to regain my spiritual edge to regain my spiritual edge, because sometimes you can just do this. I, I, I think I've taken one Sunday off in about 15 months. So I was getting a little dull. And I, I went on this thing to get, regain my edge first, and then to get a vision from God for this church that would make a tremendous impact for his kingdom. Long about day seven, here's how things started to go. Me, what would you have me do with the rest of my life, Lord? Day seven. Jesus, rescue the lost. Three words? Can I have more? Rescue the lost. Rescue those who are far from me. They don't know me. They don't know the danger they're in. Go after them. Rescue the lost. Be a pastor who first and foremost shares the good news of the gospel with those who are far from me. Put that first. And he reminded me of others who said the same thing. The death of Jesus on the cross was the single most important act in all of human history. I hope you know that. The single most important act because that's where he paid the price. Right there with it, tied, is the resurrection. One without the other and cancels either one out. Without his death, though, we would have no lasting hope of any kind for the Apostle Paul, like other writers of the New Testament, the cross of Christ, the rescue mission of Jesus, salvation itself was first and foremost in his preaching. I'll bet you didn't know that because people say, Apostle Paul, when you preach him, he talks about all this stuff, he goes real deep. You know the Apostle Paul said? For me, it's just Christ. I would leave all else out. For me, I just want to preach Christ and Christ crucified. Well, he preached a whole lot more than that. Yeah, but if you really read his writings and really delve in deep, it always came back to that every single time. That's the foundation of it. That's how every single church that Paul planted grew by those being rescued. Do you know there was no such thing when Paul planted all those churches in the New Testament as reshuffling the deck? There was no such thing back then as people just moving and church hopping all around because when he planted a church, it was completely peopled by lost people who got converted to Christ, brand new baby Christians. That's the healthiest way for a church to grow, through rescued people who are grateful having been rescued. So Paul rehearsed how he exuberantly preached Christ, that is the Messiah, on the cross. He wrote to the Corinthians, I resolved, this is is 1 Corinthians 2, 2, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How much is that? He's going to this completely dysfunctional church who wanted to have all these questions, and he said, all right, here's what it is, I'm throwing everything out. When I come to minister to you, I will know nothing while I'm with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We're going to start there and we're going to pound that home and the beatings will continue until you get it. And Paul was excited about proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah hanging on the cross. The message of the cross of Christ was the power of God, 1 Corinthians one twenty four. the power of God and the wisdom of God for him. But Paul was so wise, he was so deep, he just told you how. The power of God and the wisdom of God, for Paul, came from the simple gospel. Christ crucified and arose. So back to my time, these past 41 days with Jesus. He consistently brought me to scripture. By the way, if you're going to fast and you do not spend more time in God's word and more time in prayer than you did before the fast, it's not a fast, it's a diet. That's all it is. All right, so don't sit there and go home and go, I'm going to try this 21-day fast. See what I can get God to do. You'll get him to do exactly nothing. God's not a genie in a lamp. You don't rub it through your fast and get him to come out. But it'll draw you so close to God and align your heart so clear that you'll know what he's thinking. Then you can join him instead of asking him to join you in your selfish pursuits. It's a better deal. So he consistently brought me to verses like Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, but specifically the second part. Look at this. And to give his life as a ransom for many. It was that one word, ransom, because it's used over and over again. Christ's death was somehow a ransom. I know he paid the price, but see, when I think of ransom, that haunts me. See, A ransom is something that you pay to a criminal holding a hostage, right? That's what you do with a ransom. It can either be money or a flat-out exchange. In other words, my life for theirs. You know, somebody's holding my kids hostage, and they go, you know, I'm mad at you for something you did or said, Pastor Rob, which is easy to understand, because I do say things sometimes that offend, but it's you I really want. I'm gonna harm your kids unless you come. I'll let them go. So if I give them my life, and they let my kids go, that's a ransom received. That's what it was for Jesus. He gave his life to pay some sort of ransom, to rescue us from the one who had kidnapped us, Satan, kidnapped us, became the prince of this earth. Honestly, is that mission that hard to understand? What did Christ come to do? I don't know, it's a mystery. Really? I don't think it's that hard. When our children are as young as three or four years old, we teach them, now, don't take candy from a stranger, right? When a stranger comes and offers you candy, don't take candy from a stranger. Some of you going, I don't know, that's a new one. No, you taught your kids that, didn't you? Or listen, seven, eight years old. Listen, if you have some guy you don't know, or some guy, somebody comes pulling up and says, I've lost my puppy. Can you come here and help me find my... You don't listen to that. You don't know them. You don't have a relationship with them. Run away. That's a luring thing that's wrong. They're trying to kidnap you. They are leading you. Toward death. I mean, the very first example of this is the temptation from the serpent, who's really Satan, to eat the candy-coated apple in the garden. Right? So Jesus continued talking to me says, that was my mission when I came to earth. I want you to rescue the lost. I will say it over and over again. Rescue the lost. Rescue the lost. Continue the mission. Because that was my mission. And I'm passing the baton to you. I mean, we just read it. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Came to seek and save the lost. Now, for some of us who are believers, if you're sitting here right now, you're a Christ follower, you're sitting there going, I remember when I was saved, but I've kind of moved on. I don't think about that much anymore. Because many of us think about life, honestly, bluntly, can I be blunt, as being all about us. We, we do. I do it. It's a natural temptation. What is life about? I think it's, I think it's about me. Where do the planets revolve? I'm around me. How about the sun? Me. It's all about me. I wake up and I try to get people to be nice to me. I don't want people to be mean to me. I don't like experiencing pain from someone else towards me. It's all about me. How to be comfortable. How can I be more comfortable? How can I be happy? How can I live a more pampered life? But living our lives as comfortable as possible and risk-free as possible just so that we can safely arrive at death is dumb. Is dumb because death's not good for you. Death is unhealthy. And it's not all about us. Look, even Jesus being God didn't come with that expectation as God. We just read that. I hope you didn't miss it. For even the Son of Man, uh, Mark 10, 45, did not come to be served but to serve. So there's some key in giving our life away and serving if you want an abundant, fulfilled life that you can't find when you're always trying to get everybody to serve you. I'm just trying to tell you. I'm just trying to unpack what he gave me in these days. So Jesus continues, and he, and he talked to me softly and kindly when honestly, he probably could have hit me over the head with a baseball bat. My son, he said, church right now, especially in the Western world, where you are, where you live, is mostly self-focused, and it is. It's mostly me-focused. Teach me, feed me, bless me. I want my needs met. I said in my heart, I understand better than you or Impact or a thousand other churches in Charlotte what your needs are and what your wants are and what is good for you. I know better than you do, and I also know something else. I know how better to bring that peace and that happiness and that joy into your heart. That's what you're really looking for anyway. I know how to do that better than you do. In fact, I know that you're running in the wrong direction. I know that. I can see it. I want to turn you around because I want you to have that peace and joy too. It doesn't come from trinkets and toys. Hear me, gang. The cross, I feel like you said this the cross has two beams, not one, it has two beams. A horizontal one and a vertical one. And we just spend all our time with our horizontal relationships and how we can fulfill ourselves. And he says, Look, the, the, the vertical beam is twice as long, three times as long. It's a priority. Spend more time getting connected with me and getting intimately in relationship with me, and I'll take care of the horizontal beam. But you can't spend all your time taking care of what's for you and next to no time for me and hope that your life balances out. It won't work, it never works. Your horizontal needs, your relationships, your peace, your comfort, your purpose, your healing, your food, your clothing are important. And God knows that's important. But he says, seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. And all these things will be added to you. I'll take care of all these things. I'm not going to let my child go out and die. I'm not going to let my child go out and starve. I'll take care of you. But seek me first. Then I'll add these things to you. So remember, two beams. And the one is more important, the vertical relationship. But here's the problem, Kate. We forget. As I'm looking at this over this last month, I'm going, God, how do we forget? If you're a Christ follower here, the rescue that God made for you, the interceding that he did to take your life from where it was to what it is to adopt you as a child of God, how do we exactly forget that? How do we forget that? That's like once being pushed out of a helicopter on a, I tried to think of a, a scenario that probably wouldn't happen. Pushed out of a helicopter on a bungee cord that broke, and landing on the back of a pterodactyl that pitches you into the ocean, where you fight off a great white shark into submission and ride it all the way home onto the shore. <laughs> yeah, I remember when that, you remember when that happened? No, I can't remember, really, I don't remember, I kind of remember the helicopter part on the great, I've kind of, no, there's no way you would forget that, right? And it could have got more ridiculous, but we forget something that's even bigger, In fact, I'm going to say this. I'm going to say that it's impossible to forget so great a salvation. I don't think we forget it. I don't think you can. I think it's impossible if you're truly saved. So we don't forget it, gang. Write this down. We replace it. That's what's happening. We don't forget it. We just replace it. And then we end up forgetting it and remembering instead the thing that we've replaced. So we forget it because we go after something else. You see, once saved, a lot of us proceed to try and, and do this. Once we're saved and we're taken care of it, and the fear is gone and we put our feet back in the water and we go, it's okay, God took care of me, I feel this freedom, I could live life, then we proceed to set up heaven on earth. That's what we do. Well, I don't want to wait, I'm adopted, I'm a child of the king, I, can, I should be living a certain life, and so we start trying to make this life that life, and they're not the same. We try to make this our home, and God says, no, no, no. I have a home, I'm preparing a place for you. John 14 talks about this. I've been preparing a place for you for 2,000 years. This is not your home. You're an ambassador on a mission. Get with the mission. So no, we don't wanna do that. We wanna get to heaven early and here's how we do it as a culture. We embark on a quest to smooth out all the bumps and and take down all the hurdles and remove all the risks and detonate all the obstacles and try to make this thing just as smooth and comfortable and cush as possible and say, now, that's a blessed life. And I'm going to say, that's a false gospel. I'm going to say, that could very well be a cursed life. Now, please don't read me wrong. God wants to bless you, and you are his children. But if you try to set up heaven here, you're going to tend to push him out. It's weird. The little heavens we set up in our own life don't ever seem to have room for God. They don't. Can you imagine an Olympic hurdler? Let me just put this. Could you imagine an Olympic hurdler who never jumped a hurdle? Yep, I'm in the Olympics. They gave me a free pass to see how I do it. I'm pretty fast. How did you train? Well, I'd go to the track, and as soon as they left, I'd knock all the hurdles down and have them taken off the track, and then I would run really fast. Did you ever try to jump? No, but I know I can. I don't think you can. I think you're gonna look like an idiot when you go out there. And when you try to jump, the first hurdle's gonna knock you flat on your face. Because you've never jumped one. Instead, what they do is they train and they stretch and they'll jump lower hurdles and then they'll put out higher ones and higher ones. And sometimes I've learned that they'll jump hurdles that are higher than the ones they're going to even jump in the Olympics. So they're trying to face problems and hurdles and obstacles that are even harder than the one when race day comes. So why would they do that? So they'll be ready. So they'll be ready when they're called. Carefully making sure the track is always smooth. That's our goal. I want you to watch this and pay close attention to this. That's not even possible. It's not even possible. We live in a fallen world. There are definitely going to be trials as the prince of the power of the air, Satan, seeks to derail us from God's path. See, the first thing he doesn't want you to do is come to Christ through salvation. I'm imagining he's failed with quite a few of you sitting here. Having failed that, he's not done with you. Are you kidding? He's not done with you. He just shifts to plan B. And plan B is to get you to care so much about yourself, so much about the horizontal relationships and things in your life that you set up heaven on earth and shoot for a comfy, safe ride all the way to death. But at that point, you'll stand before the Lord and he'll say, what have you done? Nothing. I didn't really do anything of significance for you, Lord. I I was getting ready to. I fully planned on it. I don't know what went wrong. I just never did. I was, I was trying to play it safe. That's very displeasing to God. Very displeasing to God. So we set up this, this catch-22. Here's the problem. This scenario that has no chance whatsoever of happening. And when the first trials hit, the first hurdle, we try to jump it. The first betrayals or the, the first losses in our life, we cry out to God saying, Where were you? Why didn't you help me when I was hurting? Why aren't you here? Isn't that how it goes, kind of? I mean, this this foreign to you going, I've never seen this scenario. No, you've lived it. We've all lived it. And God says, I'm right here. I promised you. Matthew 28, read your Bible. I promised I will never leave you nor forsake you. But right before I said that, I said, go to all the earth and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you and lo, I am with you always till the end. But Something came before that. Line up with me. Line up with my mission. I'll be with you always. But see, you are my child, he says, but he says, I didn't leave you. You left me. You left me. You created your own heaven and made sure there's no room for me there. But we hear that from God, or you hear that from me right now, and I bet some of you are sitting here a little bit like this, or at least if you go, I don't fold my arms because you always call that out. So some of you are spiritually folding your arms, and you're saying, I'm not buying that. I'm not buying that because we're hurting. I'm hurting. If he cared, he'd help me. I'm not buying that thing you just pushed. So there's the rub. And God calls us in Romans 8 to be more than conquerors. We're sitting here setting up our cushy, safe life, taking no risk, telling no one about how Jesus came and and died on the cross for their sins and can take them from being far from God and reconcile them and adopt them. We don't want to do that. They might get mad, so we play it safe. And Jesus says, that's so far from what I called you to do. I actually called you to be conquerors, but it says in Romans 8, more than conquerors. That's a higher calling than comfort and safety, I think. To be a conqueror is to have victory over the enemy. To be a conqueror is to be in control of your circumstances in the Lord and confident, but it's it's more than that. To be more than a conqueror is different. It's to say no matter who wins these little battles in life, I know I have the victory. I know that. So I I can enter these little battles because I know I will win. To be more than a conqueror is to have the victory, not over the difficulty, listen people, but in it. To be more than a conqueror is to know that you have the victory not over the difficulty, but in it and through it. So please don't sit there and go, I don't really understand the difference. You've got to understand the difference. You have to get this. No matter what happens, to be more than a conqueror is to sense the presence of the Lord, to know that he's with you. and, and, And although I may not understand exactly what he's doing in my life, I trust him because nothing could separate me like Seth said this morning, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate me from his love. He proved that. He proved that when he gave himself as a ransom. Why would he ransom me if he didn't care about me? Somebody's lying to you. Somebody's lying to you. It's either God or it's Satan. So God reminded me of this throughout my time. And... He said, be more than a conqueror. Teach them they aren't more than a conqueror. But before we leave this, I want to I help some of you who are sitting there and just going, but what but what's exactly is the point of being more than a conqueror? What's the point, Pastor Rob? What if I don't want that? What if I like my salvation and I'm not outgoing? What's the point? Well, imagine if you wanted to fly from Charlotte to Australia. Listen, listen to this little scenario. This might help you because I know some are thinking that. I don't want that. I don't want, I don't want to be Varsity. I want to be JV. JV is not even available in God's kingdom. It's no JV. He calls everybody to Varsity. So imagine if you wanted to fly from Charlotte to Australia, and the ticket agent said, well, you have a choice. You can either have, I mean, it's an all-powerful ticket agent. You can either have a completely smooth flight All the way to Sydney, Australia, I mean, I can guarantee you there's not even going to be a bump. However, this plane's had a few issues. It flies absolutely smooth, but I cannot guarantee that it will not crash land upon arrival in Sydney. Probably will. Or you can take this other plane, and I'm going to tell you right now there's going to be a lot of turbulence. There's definitely going to be bumps on this journey. I mean, I I guarantee you that. But here's what else I'll guarantee you. This plane will land safely in Sydney, Australia. You will get home safe, or you will get to your destination safely. It's another one of those things. Which one would you take? I didn't say this. The first one offers movies in first class. And steak and lobster, surf and turf in the first class. You have your own private bathroom. The seats now expand into a bed. You can sleep. It's a long flight. No bumps. You won't wake up. It's going to be fantastic. And smooth. And smooth. You still might crash, though. Probably will. So, which one? You tell me, people, which one? Second one. Give me all the bumps. I don't care if it's a trampoline in the sky. I really don't care. I I want to know that I'm going to arrive safely. Do you see the connection between that little story and the Christian life? Do you not see it? If you don't, let's keep going. You would choose, I believe, to put up with some bumps during the flight in order to arrive in one piece. I know you would. The Lord has an eternal destiny charted out for us as a church. And he will get all those who have received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior to heaven, to his mission, safely. The flight this side of eternity, though, will most certainly be a bit bumpy. It's going to be. Maybe I'm the first one that's actually told you that, but I guarantee it. It's gonna be bumps. It's gonna be turbulence. I guess what I'm saying is, number one, bumps and some turbulence with Jesus or false comfort and safety in this life with an eternal crash guaranteed at the end. Some of you are like, why can't we have both? You mean bumps in the crash? Oh, you oh you mean safety and a smooth flight? Well, you can't think of it this way. A few years ago, my family and I had to take a small computer, computer commuter plane. We were on vacation, and we had to take it to the other side of this island destination to get to the airport. That thing was like riding on an airborne trampoline. I was just up and down, just bouncing. I mean, just seasick, absolute turbulence galore. They delivered on that promise. We could not wait for the thing to land, but. if we flew on a 747 first class with all the meals and the movies and the little slippers, you ever seen those they put on there? We would be so comfortable. Ah. We Just sit back. We might not ever want to get off that flight. We might not ever want that flight to end. And I go, I don't want to fly forever. Well, then apply it to this life. Why in the world would God not want you to have zero, want you to have zero bumps, no turbulence? Why would He not want you to have a completely smooth ride with no problems, no pain, no loss, no motivation? Because you're never gonna want to leave that to live the mission. Don't we see that? That's why people don't do what God called them to do, because they're too comfortable and the sailing's too smooth and they don't want to rock the boat. Can't have them both. The Lord wants us to keep our focus on the things of eternity. There are bumps along the way in order that you and I might long for heaven. If we don't, we'll be lulled into a spiritual coma. And then when we do get to heaven, we will arrive there spiritually bankrupt because we didn't store up our treasures there. We didn't set up our our situation there. We set up heaven on earth. Trying to spare you that. So we take risks, we chase after the lost, and we get involved in the rescue mission that Jesus called all believers to to do. So I'm having this conversation with Jesus, back to that. So I said, God, then what? You don't have to convince me on the rescue mission, that's in my heart. I'm like the little kid on Sixth Sense. I see dead people. I don't see dead people so much. You know what I see? I see lost people. I see lost people. I see people that that are... that I, I have five-minute conversation. I know they don't know Jesus, so I know where they're going, and I care about it. So this took very little convincing, but I said, then what? And he said, and write this down, because there were three words in that, rescue, raise, release. He said, then raise them up, Pastor Rob. raise them up. Teach them that they were made in my image and that it is to the image of God that they must return. Teach them to observe all that I've commanded all the days of their life. Raise them up. We're going to talk about that next week. Raise them up. And I said, to what, Lord? Raise them up to what? To be released for my mission. Come on, there's got to be more than that, God. That's it. It's simple. But what breaks my heart, Rob, is I can't hardly find anybody to do it. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are so few. Yes, it's not, a, it's not a complex Einstein vision. It's simple and grounded in the word of God. And I can hardly think of a church that are doing all three things. Rescue, raise, release. But here's what Jesus told me in my heart. and made real plain. I said, there's a lot of clarity in a fast. You wanna hear it? I'm gonna give it to you. Do this and I will greatly bless it. Do this and I will greatly bless it. Do this and this church will make a mighty impact for my kingdom. Honor me in this, and Impact Church will have my favor. My favor will rest upon this church. Just align your hearts with mine, and I'll break it loose. When we have God's approval on our decision, when the vision is his rather than man's, and this is his, not mine, then he will provide everything that we need to see it happen. That's when he just opens the floodgates of heaven. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. Ever heard that? Where God guides, he also provides. Don't make me have a couple other cheesy ones here. But it's true. But listen, this is very important. And I'll say it again. I said it once. I know I did, but I don't know if you got it. Fasting without pressing in with more prayer and more time in God's word is just a diet. It's just a diet. A problem in the American church is that we we really don't value either one. Here's some scary facts for you. Most people in America own, an, on average, eight Bibles. I've always thought of you as an above-average crowd. You probably have 10 or 12 Bibles, person. each of you. Maybe your kids only have four or five. But most people, most Christians in America have never read through the Bible once and will die without ever reading through the Bible once. Most Christians can't even say all the... Names of the books in the Bible. Certainly can't say them in order. Spend less than five minutes a week, if that. We pride ourselves on my verse for the day. Your your verse for the day? That's not what I'm talking about when I say pressing into Jesus. Not your verse for the day. It's as though we don't understand. Why would we do this? As though we don't understand that prayer is being ushered into the throne room of God, Almighty God, and that the Word of God, the Bible... Is our Heavenly Father talking to us? What? That's the primary way that God talks to us. You open this up and God Almighty is talking to you. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Really? What are you doing that you don't have time for that? You know, it just takes a lot. I don't really understand it. Well, how do you think you're going to understand it? By ignoring it? I don't know. But like I, said, like I said, many of us don't seem to realize this. Most Christians have never prayed longer than five minutes. I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands. I know this. most Christians have never gotten on their knees and prayed. In fact, if they pray for five minutes, they feel like they've won a marathon. I did it. What'd you do? I prayed for five minutes. Golf clap. That's a little golf clap. Five minutes? Can we go back to the restaurant with, with your wife? Five minutes. Would you even be married to your spouse? If you only talked for five minutes to her. I mean, yes, Pastor, I'm the strong, silent type. If you're that silent, she ain't going to marry you. And if you don't listen to her, if five minutes is torture of you listening to her, she ain't gonna, she's not, not going to marry you. And you're not going to have any kind of a relationship. Or it's going to be in a lot of trouble. And most Christians, like I said before, they, they, it's not a, a lack of money or anything. We own tons of Bibles. We have all these translations. I don't really understand. That's why I bought the message. And that's a little bit too paraphrase. so I have the New Living Translation. But I want it to be a little bit more word for word, so I got the NIV. I really want it to be really word for word, so I got the ESV. No, even more, so I got the New American Well, when are you going to read them? When are you going to open them up? When we press into our Savior, we, we need to listen more than ever, pray more than ever, value your time with Jesus more than ever. Now I know you're sitting there right now and you're going, I, I want this, and I'm not exactly sure what it looks like, so I'm going to help you out. I'm going I'm to give you a 45-second glance at what it looks like, and it should bring tremendous conviction to you. Within 30 seconds of seeing this, I was weeping. In China, Christians aren't allowed to own a Bible. So they cherish even a single page of it, and they'll pass it around, and they'll memorize it. Not too long ago, a missionary got in there and got a couple of suitcases full of Bibles to one of his favorite underground churches. And I don't, there's gonna be a lot of questions when you see this. You know, whether he, it was wise for him to put this on there, but for the ministry that will do for us, that's not the danger. I, I want you to see this. Check out the reaction of these young Chinese Christians. Remember, this is taken from a cell phone, it's not very good footage. Don't let that inhibit the message. These young Chinese Christians who are presented with Bibles that were smuggled in by some missionaries. Just look at it. I saw saw that on another site that translated it. Isn't that crabby? You know what she was saying? We needed so many things. We prayed for so many things. The reason they put it to their face and we crying is because they said, this is what we needed more than anything. This is what we wanted more than anything. That's Christmas for them. They were embracing it, kissing it, and we don't read it. We leave it on our shelf." We don't even dust it off. So how are we going to make an impact for God when there's that great separation? So I I want to share my heart on all of these, and I will do that in the next few weeks. And if there's any of you kicking this around and thinking about this, you need to be here for that. Rescue, raise, and release. A couple more things today. Rescue, like I said, was a no-brainer. I'm an evangelist at heart. When Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost, even the most naive, simple-minded person can get that. Jesus, why did you come? Why did you come? What is your mission? What is your purpose? Really? I came to seek and save the lost. A five-year-old can get that. There's no reason any church should ever be asking, what was Jesus' mission? Come on, you're not reading the Bible. He said it. Then where do we come in? Jesus passed the baton. When he stood on that hill right before he ascended up to heaven, it's the Great Commission. That's where he gave his mission to us. He gave it to 500 witnesses. They blew the church up on the day of Pentecost, and then they passed it to the younger generation and the next generation and the next generation, and we're passing it to you now. The mission hasn't changed at all. It hasn't changed. Jesus told us to go. Go and make disciples. There's no more important thing any of us could be doing with our life. Excuse me, Pastor, I am a nuclear scientist. I don't care. That's not as important as your mission as a believer to be a witness for Jesus Christ. I'm a brain surgeon, Pastor. Hey, I run all of Bank America. I I own the thing. I'm the CEO. I, I I don't care. If you're a believer and you never tell anybody about Jesus Christ, you have failed in your mission. You failed in your mission, you've dropped the baton, you never even picked it up. So that's the first step to our mission as believers. We are called to join the rescue mission that Jesus started. But Pastor Rob, why don't most believers do this? Well we need to change our perspective and we need to change our hearts. About 15 years ago there was legislation and pardon me tree huggers, you might not like this one but here it comes. There was legislation in Oregon that declared that if anyone removes an egg from the nest of the spotted owl, he can be prosecuted and will be punished with up to five years in the state penitentiary. Well, that's good. Those things are endangered, you know. But I find it interesting that a doctor can abort as many babies as they want to and nobody says a word. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? How could this happen, you say? It happens when we no longer know the mind of Christ, when our hearts are not aligned with his, and we truly we don't even have any idea what his mission is or what he values. Let's close by looking at one of the most well-known verses in all of scripture. Probably the most well-known, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I actually want you to focus on the next verse. It's not so well done. Why do we quit after one verse? Because if you don't get this next verse, then you're not gonna receive John 16 because you don't understand or you have fear about John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Some of your Bibles say to judge. But in order that the world might be saved through him, it's almost as though God is saying, I love you, I love you so much. It is like you saying, I love you so much, you can't save yourselves. You cannot afford the price. I will send my one and only son on a rescue mission. Don't be afraid of him. Don't fear me. I'm not going to judge you. Wait, don't stand back. I didn't come to judge you. I came to save you. Just think of the rescue mission, period. But we back off from God and we get... We get afraid. It's verse 17 that tells us why many miss out. We miss it because we think God isn't out to rescue us. Not really. I'm actually sure that that is why the words of 17, not just because 17 comes after 16, but I'm sure that it was placed there after the most famous verse in the Bible, because we will miss the rescue mission in our assignment altogether if we have no hope in God that he really cares and really loves us and really wants to rescue us. Without hope, we're dead in the water, aren't we? I mean, if you don't have hope or you really don't believe that, then it's game over. You will not get rescued. And you certainly, if you had hope at one point in your life and you trusted Jesus Christ and you got saved, that hope will be dashed and you'll never give that hope to somebody else. You'll stop. You'll stop. Why? Because you start thinking, but maybe now he's going to judge me. Maybe now he's going to condemn me. That's a lie from Satan. He didn't come to condemn you or to judge you. You know, a number of years ago, a study was done in Norwegian wharf rats, which I think you'll find fascinating. After being thrown in the open water, what scientists get away with this, by the way? They threw these rats in the open water. One group paddled about for three and a half minutes before drowning. That does seem cruel, doesn't it? So you take these Norwegian wharf rats, they dump them in the ocean, they paddle around, look, they're paddling. They're paddling quite stressfully. They look to be in distress, Note paragraph two. They're dead. They drowned. But look what happened. A second group was thrown in, but rescued right before they drowned. So they threw another equal amount, you know, like 10, 15 more of these Norwegian war frats in. And when they started struggling going under, they pulled them all out. Put them back in their cages, fed them, and came back the next day. And this something happened that blew them away. When the rats were thrown back into the open water, Scientists were amazed to find them able to tread water for 45 minutes or more. What happened? I told you this message is simple. How simple is it, Pastor? Wharf rats get it. Norwegian wharf rats have figured this out. Why would they swim around for 45 minutes? You know why? They swam around in hopes that they would be rescued like they were the day before. Wharf rats. And we don't trust God. We don't believe this. That he who rescued us would want to rescue others. In that case, we're not as smart as the Norwegian wharf rat. That's a tough one to swallow. But the same is true with us. If we have hope that a rescue is coming, we can tread water through bad times, can't we? We can tread water through rough times as a church, can't we? We can go through bumps, we can have turbulence, but we know the outcome. We know he's going to rescue us, so these bumps don't seem so big. The turbulence doesn't seem so bad. And that's what I want us to think about in our time of communion this morning. A little bit different than we normally have communion. Communion is a time, gang, 1 Corinthians 11, it's a time to remember, specifically to remember two things. Jesus' body was broken for you his flesh just torn apart. He didn't just give his life as a ransom and sign some paper and say, it's me for you. They tore him up. And his righteous, sinless blood was spilled out. So we're specifically told during our time of communion to remember that. But I want you to remember something else that maybe has numbed in your mind, that you have maybe forgotten. Today I want to challenge you to not only remember that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for you, but remember the day and the moment that you received forgiveness. And were rescued by him and adopted into his family. Communion is for the believer. So if you're sitting there right now and going, I'm just checking this out. I don't don't know if I believe this. I would ask that you you not participate in this. I I got something better right now where you're at than this. During our time of communion, I'm going to go right down there. And I'm going to sit. And if there's anybody who doesn't know Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, if there's anybody who has not been rescued because maybe you didn't trust God and you've tried to make your life comfy and cozy and it's not working out, and you're ready to come home, I'll be right there. I'll be right there. And I will pray with you. And you can be adopted into Christ's family just like that. Just like that. For the rest of you, and we're, we're a church, a majority of us, can't wait till we fill this place with people that don't know him. But right now, I know most of you do. So as a believer, that's the only difference this time in communion. Remember what he did, but remember the day. For me, I was seven. Guess what? I can remember it like it was yesterday. Seven? Yeah. And I don't remember anything else about my life, seven, eight, six, five. I don't remember anything really except the day I was saved. I can still see it. I can see myself walking up the stairs. I can see, I can hear the conversation, every word. I know what movie was playing. It was Snoopy, come home. And I got real upset that Snoopy was never going to come home. And my mom pounced, told me about the gospel. For some reason, for a little seven-year-old, clicked. Guy can use anything. And I followed her upstairs, and we, we knelt down beside the bed, and, and I prayed, and things changed for me, a little seven-year-old. I remember it. And I remember how there were other times when the Holy Spirit came upon me so powerfully, and he reminded me of the rescue. So, I'm praying that for you. The next 10, 15 minutes, you will go back to that place, go back to that room, go back to that tree, go back to that camp, go back to this church, and remember what He did for you. He rescued you. You were eternally doomed. You know what you were? You were a hellbounder. That's what you were, and you're not anymore. And that's worth something, isn't it? So, remember that, dwell on that. Thank him for it, and then when you're ready, take of the bread and the cup, and then I'll come up and close this.